We will now be reading from God's Word. We will be reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. That can be found on page 875 in the Bibles on the chairs around you. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it falls, or when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will you entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, lead pastor, and, and thanks for joining us this morning as we continue looking at the parables of Jesus. Um, we launched this sermon series, I don't know, a handful of weeks ago with uh, Luke 15, the chapter directly before this parable. We were looking at the prodigal son. That's what it's normally called. And, and we talked about how culturally, most people, when they hear prodigal son, they think prodigal means wandering because that's often how the story is told, that he's the, the son who wandered away and later was found and brought home and it was a huge celebration. The word prodigal, uh, though, means wasteful. It doesn't mean wandering. It means wasteful because the younger son, when he received his full inheritance, went and wasted it on riotous living. He was a prodigal son because he was a wasteful son. And we, we saw that the father was also prodigal. He was wasteful because he was wasteful with his reputation. He was wasteful with his grace. When his, when his um, dishonest and dishonorable son ran home, he, man, he just ran out. He greeted him. He hugged him. He clothed him in a new cloak and gave him a ring of authority and threw him a party, right? He received mercy. He didn't get what he deserved. He received grace. He got what he could never earn, right? It was this huge celebration. The father was being wasteful with his own reputation in the community and in the surrounding environment. As a result, the older brother got offended and he became wasteful, right? He, he was out in the field when he heard that there was a party going on. Um, he wasted his father's grace because his father came out and invited him to the party. He's like, I'm not going to that, that party of, of, of disrepute, right? I'm, I'm not going to go waste my reputation in the community by celebrating this son who, who dishonored himself and covered himself with shame. I'm not, I'm not doing that. He became wasteful of his father's grace. The next week, we, we actually went back. There are two more parables right before the prodigal son that are in the same context. 
the parable of the good shepherd, and we saw that he was also prodigal. He was also wasteful. He, he wasted the 99 to find the one. He left the 99 out in the open country, uh, went and found the one that was lost and brought it home and threw a party right? There was also the woman who was prodigal. She was wasteful. She, she spent an entire day um, searching for a coin that uh, everybody around her thought wasn't worth the effort of the time. She was wasteful with her productivity, her time, her energy. And yet each time, whoever was wasteful ended up throwing a huge party as if it were a really big deal. Once they found the one sheep, once they found the one coin, once he received back his, his one son, And all three parables basically drive home the same principle, and that is that religious people often have trouble keeping their values straight. And why do I highlight religious people? Because remember the context, Jesus is speaking to a crowd and and tax collectors and sinners drew near to Him, and He often spent time with them, even though um, religious people would see that as a a knock on on His social capital, His tonish. Remember that word tonish is a Middle Eastern word that means a a hidden economy of respect, right? When when tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus, uh, religious people were like, why is He hanging out with them? He should be hanging out with us. We're the people that were hard. We're the people that are moral. We're the people that have cleaned ourselves up. We're the people that have, that have, that have disciplined ourselves, that live by the law of God, that do all these right things, right? And, and Jesus is saying, your values are getting skewed, right? Your values are getting skewed. You value moral improvement. You value other people's opinion of you. You want to look religious, you want people to think highly of you. You, you want to be seen as a, a bastion of, of doctrinal solidity or, or, or the orthodox one or, or the right-behaving, self-controlled one. Or you value people who are cleaned up and tidy like you. And you don't value people who are messy. You don't value people who need grace, people who are... Man, they're just in the mess, and, and they say dumb things, and they do dumb things, and they're just stumbling, and, um, but, but they're stumbling toward grace. See, these parables drive home a point. What you don't value, God does. God, God's not alienated by the mess. He's not put off by our shame. He loves the neediness and the broken and the outcast. He loves the ones that we despise. Why? Because it's in their brokenness that they rediscover their humility. It's in their neediness that once again they come to receive grace and not demand the wage that they think their righteousness has earned. They're not coming and showing up to God, pushing their resume across the table, saying, look how God I've done, now you owe me. They're showing up and saying, I have nothing And God rejoices to give them everything. Because in the end, that's all any of us are. We are beggars coming to the table of grace. We have nothing to offer God. Isaiah reminds us that our best works are like filthy rags, right? Our our self-righteousness is just that. It is self-identified, self-measured righteousness. We, We have nothing to offer God, and yet He offers us everything in our need if we're humble enough to come and receive grace. And that's why religious can be, religion can be dangerous because in, when we get religious, we often start valuing the wrong things, right? We, we, we come in our need and pretty soon we start showing up in our self-improvement. 
I've fixed myself. I'm cleaning myself up. I am, I am adjusting my behavior. I am earning God's favor. And, and, and when we don't do well, we feel like God is farther away from us. When we do really well, we feel like we've earned the right to come into the presence of God. And our religion becomes our separation from grace because our resume becomes a buffer between us and our need. So these parables drive home a, a very, very cutting but very comforting truth that God loves us in our neediness and He wants to draw near to us in our brokenness and He, he treasures our humility because it is in being loved that we are changed. It is in being loved that we are freed. It is in being loved that we become who He created us to be. It is not in our ability to fix ourselves for God. It is in our ability to rest in His ability to fix us for Himself. Religious people tend to value appearance, the praise of men and their self-improvement projects instead of love and grace and true joy with other messy people who are stumbling toward grace. So Jesus is is speaking words of comfort to those that are broken and feel alienated and words of conviction to those who who are feeling pretty smug, self-improved, and uh, comfortable on their resume. Now, there's one more parable in this context. That's why I'm coming, telling you this. The parable we read today is in the same exact context. It's at the beginning of chapter 16. It comes right after the parable of the prodigal son. It's to the same audience, right? And in fact, even though it's called the prodigal of the um, dishonest uh, manager, I think it's better named the parable of the prodigal manager because in verse 1, he's called wasteful. That's the same word right? He's a prodigal manager, a wasteful manager. Now, he's also called dishonest, so the, the name's not bad, but I want you to see that even though there's a chapter break here, it's the same conversation, right? He's speaking to the same people, right? We see that, in fact, in verse 14, which we didn't read, but, but you see the audience, right? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him, <laughs> right? So, he's still speaking to people who have a fundamentally different value system from him, people who claim to follow God, but their value system leads them far from God. And when Jesus exposes their folly, instead of finding humility, they mock Him. They ridicule Him. They find His values ridiculous. Who would live like that? Who would value that? So that's where we're going this morning, all right? This one's a, this one's a, a kick in the butt, y'all. I hope you're ready for it. Um, Because we're going to be talking about money, and and we hate talking about money, and we hate it especially when church talks about money. Um, But Jesus talked more about money than He did love, um, or heaven, or hell, or those three things combined. Because um, money is spiritual. It is not simply personal and private. What we do with our money shows our hearts, and what we do with our money shapes our hearts, right? So, so let's kind of dig into this because we're either going to be aligned with greed or we're going to be aligned with grace. Those two things do not play well together. So let's take a look at this really strange parable and admit up front it is a strange parable, all right? It is one of the strangest in the New Testament. In fact, there are, there are scholars who would say this is one of the most difficult parables in the New Testament, and, and, and that's because there are layers and layers of irony, in this parable. There's sarcasm and, and some irony, which means that he's, 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 he's pushing into some tensions that require us to, to sit with them. And so I'm not going to be able to unpack everything in this parable this morning, but I do want to pull out what I think are the central 
the central themes, okay? So, so let's take a look at the parable. In verses 1 and 2, uh, we see it set up. He said there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man, his manager, was wasting his possessions. There's that word prodigal. He was being prodigal with his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. You're fired, right? So, so verses 1 and 2 set up the story. Now, stewards were incredibly important uh, on a rich person's estate. The steward was entrusted with basically running the business on behalf of the rich man. They had a ring of authority, which, which is how they created legal documents, right? They could sign things and put wax on there and press that ring in there, and that was a way of saying the authority of this house resides in this document. He was entrusted with the authority to make deals on behalf of the, uh, of the rich man to manage his wealth and to get him a return. Now, this is a weak comparison, but today that that might be something along the lines of an investment broker. If you've got a lot of money and you don't know anything about investments, you may hire somebody and say, you know a lot about investments. I don't. So I give you authority with my money. Go make me money. Make wise investments, right? Put it in things that are going to get me a good return. Don't be wasteful with my money. And there's a shared um, goal because the, the investment broker or the manager actually takes a commission, right? There's a piece of that that comes back to them. So it's in their own self-interest to manage it well because in managing it well, they not only increase um, the, the investment on behalf of the rich person, but they re- uh, increase their return, right? The problem was this manager was being wasteful. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it does mean he's just not handling his job well, right? Now, maybe he's missing opportunities he should have taken. Maybe he's taking bad opportunities that he shouldn't have taken. Maybe he's taking more off the top than he should have. We don't know. But somehow, the, the rich guy's looking at it going, you're, you're wasteful, which means you're not the right guy for this job. You're, you're, you're not up to it. And so he calls him in and basically says, you're fired. I want you to go and get all the accounts and bring them to me because you're done. Right? You no longer work here, so get all the accounts, bring them to me, and, and I'll take it from there. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. Starting in verse 3, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. I love this internal dialogue. Right? He's walking back to his, his part of the house, because remember, the, the house was the marketplace. Right? He wasn't leaving Wall Street and going back to his condo, you know, outside in the burbs. They live in a, in a, in a, in a shared environment uh, because he works there. He lives there. He's walking back to his part of the house. And as he's walking, he's like, uh, I'm not built for manual labor. That's not a good fit for me. And look at this suit, dude. I, I don't want to be begging, right? I'm used to, I'm used to living large. I'm used to, to getting people's respect. I'm, I'm not going to be the guy on the street. And then, he, and then literally in the Greek, it's kind of like um, it is the equivalent of the light bulb turning on above his head. He's like, I got it. I figured out the solution to my, to my problem, right? I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from my management, so when I lose my place on this estate, people may receive me into their houses. I'll have some place to go. I'll have a new home to move into. I'll have a new estate to become part of, right? Take a look at verses 5 through 7 to see the plan. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, which indicates that there's a number of them. We only hear two of the stories, but the indication is that there's more. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? 
He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Boom. All right, next. All right, how much do you owe? A uh, hundred measures of wheat. He said, all right, take your bill, write 80. Boom, it's done. All right, so this is, this is his plan. He's just reducing all the debts um, to his master. He's responsible for specific accounts, and in the dying moments of his authority, while well, he still has this ring before it has been reclaimed, he uses it to cut the amount owed um, by all of these significant debtors, right? So kind of give you an idea that the one who owes a um, hundred measures of oil, uh, the word that's used there, batos, means um, eight and three quarters gallons, so it was 875 gallons of, of oil that was owed, which was equivalent to the yield of 150 olive trees uh, annually. So it's not insignificant, right? And so when he's like, reduce that to 50, right? That's a significant impact on what this guy owes. And then get a guy that comes in with 100 measures of wheat. He's like, right, 80. The word that's used there, koros, means 10 bushels. So he's talking about 1,000 bushels of wheat, which is equivalent to the yield of 100 acres annually. All right, so reduce that to, uh, to 800 bushels, right? And so with his, the last moments of his dying authority, he brings these guys in, cancels their original bills, creates new bills with, with his authority, and then sends them out. And basically what he's done is he's, he's reduced their debt to his master so that they are now indebted to him. So when he leaves, they're going to be like, oh yeah, that's the guy that gave me a good turn, right? That's the guy who was smart enough to, to, to create a way for himself. Maybe I've got a place for him. He's, he's pretty shrewd, kind of dishonest, got to be careful with the guy, but, but he's, he's shrewd, right? And, and potentially could use that for good purposes. All right, so I want to give you a little bit of the social context for what's going on here, because obviously this guy's a snake. We can recognize that, um, but I, I want you to see just how snaky this whole thing is, because this is uh, a viper's pit of dishonesty. Um, in the Jewish culture, it was illegal for Jewish people to charge other Jewish people interest. Okay, that was actually part of the Jewish law. It was repeated numerous times. Exodus 22, 25 through 27 says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else will he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. All right, so there's a clear principle here that God is making pretty clear in this, right? He, he's basically saying you don't get to charge people in your family, your spiritual family interest, right? You, you're not going to leverage their need for your gain. You're not going to take advantage of their poverty to increase your wealth. Even though you have much and they have little, you are not to use that over, over time to increase their indebtedness and to increase your own personal wealth. Instead, you are supposed to use your wealth not to build your own little kingdom, but for the flourishing of life in the community. Did you catch that? That's the, there's an underlying principle here. Money isn't given to you to increase the glory, the security, the comfort of your little kingdom. 
Money is given to you to increase the, the fullness and the flourishing of life, not just for you, but for your family and for your spiritual family, for your community, right? You are connected to others and you are indebted to them as being part of this same spiritual community. So your financial outlook isn't just your financial outlook. You are not to leverage other people's need for your personal gain. Now, as you can imagine, um, this ran up against human nature. It would run up against the American nature, no doubt about it. It ran just as much up against the the nature of of the ancient Jewish people um, because wealthy people feel entitled. When I've got it, man, I've earned it. It's mine. Who are you to touch it, right? I feel entitled to what I have. I've worked hard for it. Yeah, I got a few lucky breaks along the way. Yeah, there were some people that opened some doors for me along the way. But, but if I've got it, it's because I've earned it. Yeah, but you won the lottery. But I picked the numbers, right? You want to be like me? You would go do what I did. You want to have what I have? You go work like I worked, invest like I invest, get lucky like I got lucky. And if you don't, it's your fault. Go do what I did and you'll get what I've got. And if you don't, well, too bad on you, right? We feel really entitled. Once we've gained it, it's our right to keep it. And in fact, it's our right to increase it, right? We feel entitled and we feel really threatened by people who might minimize it because the goal is to keep what I have and get more. That's continually the goal. And so if there's somebody showing up in need, they're a threat to me because they minimize it without anything to offer back, right? They, they take, but they don't give. They reduce the capital, but don't increase the interest, right? It's like, that's not a good thing. That's what we feel taken advantage of when people in need show up and lay claim to what we have. When they show up and they say, we're part of the same spiritual family, and I'm in need and you have what I need. This is very un-American, but it's very biblical. We're all in the same boat, and we owe a debt of allegiance to one another, biblically. In the same way, you owe a debt of allegiance to your family, right? The Scripture, man, one of the best insults the Scripture gives is when a man won't even take care of his own family. He's so selfish, he only takes care of himself, he won't even take care of his family, right? He says, that's worse. Unbelievers don't even do that right? But Scripture takes it one step further in the sense that we are deeply indebted to one another. We are part of a spiritual community, and we are indebted to that community because God has blessed the community, not just me individually, but me in a community of people that are growing and are rich in grace. Now, here's the challenge. So, what ended up happening is wealthy people in that culture found ways to create loopholes to do what they wanted to do and get what they wanted to get, right? There's no surprise there. Religious people have been doing that forever. Um, They do it today. Um, And so um, what they thought was this. um, If you're impoverished, I'm indebted to you. But if you have, if you already have some of what you're asking for, you're not impoverished. You're just trying to increase your personal wealth. And if you're trying to increase your personal wealth, that means this is a partnership. And if it's a partnership and you increase your personal wealth, that means I'm entitled to some of the gain that you earn, right? If if you're impoverished, then I need to reach out to you in charity, right? But if you're not impoverished, that's a partnership. And if it's a partnership, I'm entitled to some of the gain. And so what they did is this. Um, Here's a couple steps of logic, first of all. Um, 
If you have what you're borrowing, that means you don't need it. That means you just want more. So therefore, the principle of this verse doesn't apply to you. Because these passages are about people in poverty, not people that are trying to increase their personal wealth. That's business, not poverty, so we should share the profits. So the second thing I do is if you come to me and you ask to borrow a cloak, I convert that into commodities. So if a cloak is worth 10 bushels of wheat, I now write out a script and say, I'm, I'm loaning you 10 bushels of wheat. Okay? Why do I do that? Why do I convert it into commodities? Because everybody, unless they are absolutely destitute, have some wheat and oil laying around. That's the stuff of life. And so if you come to me to borrow money, you come to me to borrow a cloak, I convert it into commodities. I'm not dealing with somebody in poverty. I'm dealing with someone who wants to grow in personal wealth because you already have what I'm loaning you. Therefore, I'm entitled to some of the share of what will be increased. Step three, I can't charge interest. (laughs) right? I'm a religious person. I obey the law. I honor God, and, and, and the Word of God forbids me from charging interest. So I'm not going to charge you interest, but I am entitled to some of the share of the increase. So what we're going to do is we're going to agree in advance how much of the share of increase I get. So you're going to borrow 40 bushels of wheat. In 18 months, you're going to pay back 100 because we, we just know you're going to grow in wealth, right? So I'm not charging you interest. I'm just sharing in some of your future profits. The final step is that you have a steward do the deeds for you. If you're a rich man, you don't get your hands dirty with this stuff because, remember, in this culture, tarnish is huge. The value of your name is huge. It's more important that you have a well-respected name than you have a huge bank account. Now, they want a lot of money, but, but they want to protect their tarnish. And so what do they do as religious people who value appearances and religious things? They separate themselves from these things. They have stewards who do it for them. You invest my money don't, uh, don't tell me where it's going. Don't tell me how you're getting it. I don't want to know if my money is being leveraged for unrighteous gains. I'm not going to ask because my goal is simply to increase my wealth. And if I don't know, I'm not culpable. If I don't know, I'm not responsible. I have a, a degree of separation between me and how I increase my wealth. That's, that's the snake pit, right? You got... You got layers and layers of self-interest, greed, and dishonesty going on here, right? The manager figures out how to pull the strings in the midst of this situation to protect himself and get what he wants. This is the steward's brilliance. He traps the wealthy man in the web of his own greed. He rewrites the loans, and reduces the amount of the future earnings they've agreed upon that that he would receive, right? And in so doing, he makes himself some friends, right? Because these guys are greedy too. And and now it's like, oh, hey, you've just reduced the amount I agreed to? That's awesome. Now, how does the rich man respond? Take a look at verse 8 because this is weird. In verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? Is that how you'd respond? If you found out your manager in the closing moments of his authority after you've already fired him but haven't claimed the ring of authority back yet, goes out and, and, and leverages, reduces your wealth for his gain, what in the world? Well, here's the thing, and that's kind of the brilliance of the guy's plan. He was stuck. He just got beat at his own game, right? If he takes these people to court... What he has to admit publicly is he knew this was happening. He has to 
leverage his tarnish in order to gain his wealth. And in that culture, that unseen economy of respectability was more important than the money. He would have to actually go out there and basically say, I was part of this and I, and I knew what was happening. He, was, he, was, he had his back up against the wall. He lost the money, but he couldn't lose the tarnish. He couldn't lose his standing in the community. He couldn't lose the respect of, his, of, his, of, his, of the fellow people around him. Not only that, the, the unfaithful steward had just raised his tonish with all those people. Right? They all liked him now. Right? They were like, man, you're a shrewd businessman. You're somebody that, that we need to be, not only be careful of, but get you on our side. If he tries to leverage his tonish against that guy, that guy already took advantage of him. His back's against the wall. So whether this is praise, like genuine praise, like he's like, wow, you just did that. I didn't see that coming. Um, this is a grudging expression of admiration, right? Uh, or whether it's him just attempting to save face, like, okay, I might as well praise him out the door because everyone else is praising him, and, uh, and I might as well salvage whatever I can salvage of this, which might be a little bit of my reputation. We don't know. We don't know. But that's the mess of this story, right? Two dishonest people ultimately trying to uh, take advantage and use one another while they take advantage of and use the world for their own personal gain. What in the world is Jesus going to do with this, <laughs> right? How does he take a story like this and, and, and say that we're supposed to learn from it? Take a look at the rest of verse 8, right? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. This is weird. Jesus is like, you see this dishonest guy? You should be more like him. In fact, it's ridiculously hypocrisy. You're full of hypocrisy because you're not more like him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Is he saying that, that, we're, that, he's, that he's American pragmatic, right? That, that, that the means to the end, right? Whatever, however, just get to the top of the mountain however you get there, right? It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you have to lie or break rules or take advantage of people or if you can get to a place like this, then that's where you want to be, right? Power is the goal. Money is the goal. No, we know that's not, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus values character every single time over results. He cares more about who we are than what we do because he knows that if we're becoming the right people, we'll end up doing the right things. He, he's more concerned with transforming us from the inside out than conforming us with a bunch of religious laws and rules. So what is he saying, right? Well, I think it's important to note, first of all, that he's not praising the dishonesty. Uh, scholar T.W. Manson said it well. He said, there's a world of difference between saying, I praise the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly, and I praise the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. He's not praising the dishonesty. He's praising the shrewdness. He's praising that this guy was clever. He wasn't praising the dishonesty. He was praising the integrity. Stick with me for a minute. Because when we think of integrity, we think of honesty, don't we? Something that's integrity is, is something that's honest, but there's a deeper meaning to that word. Integrity doesn't simply mean honesty. It, it means that there's an internal alignment in which all the pieces work together. 
right? When you talk about the integrity of the hull of a ship, you're not, you're not saying that the ship is honest. <laughs> you're saying that it was designed in such a way that everything moves toward the same end, that it has an internal strength that manifests itself in an external manifestation. There is an internal alignment Right? In our case, what he's saying is there's an internal alignment between these dishonest people's motivations and their actions. There's a shrewdness. There's a wisdom to it. He's not saying that, that, that we need to have the same motivations as them, but he's saying at least they're consistent. Right? He's, they're mired in layers and layers of corruption and deceit. But all of those layers aligned according to the same value. So he's not praising their greed, but he's saying at least they were aligned and committed to their corruption. He says, children of light, my disciples, the 12 of you sitting at my feet, the, the others of you who claim to be followers of God standing around me right now, he's speaking to this crowd, he says, children of light, are you aligned like that? Do your values align with that much integrity with your actions? Is there a shrewdness, a wisdom to the way you live? Are you so deeply committed to the values you hold, or at least claim to hold, that they manifest themselves in shrewd and ingenious and clever ways in the way you manifest them. There is an intrinsic connection between the root and the fruit. There is an intrinsic connection between the motivation and the behavior. Is there an alignment? Because there always will be. Children of light, does your behavior flow with that same level of of integrity. They are single-minded in their commitment to greed. Are you single-minded in your commitment to grace? Are you just as committed to seeing the fullness and the flourishing of the kingdom of God as they are committed to seeing the fullness and the flourishing of the kingdom of man? You want to know, and this is where it gets personal, a little bit hard for us, Look at your checkbook. Now, the application of this parable is primarily about money. Now, it goes beyond money, right? Time, talent, treasure. We can take a look at how you invest your time. We can talk about how you use your talents in addition to how you use your treasure. But I'll tell you what, you want to know what you value, take a look at your checkbook. Because you invest in what you value. You spend money on what you love. You give to what you worship. What's your checkbook say? You want to know your values? Don't look at the scripture verses hanging on your walls or your personal family mission statement. Take a look at your checkbook because your checkbook, your behavior will show um, your motivations. The fruit will show the root. Does the confession of your checkbook reflect the confession of your faith? Now, again, that makes us nervous. We get a little, little Americans, man. Don't be talking about my money. Don't, don't be, no, right? This is... That's spiritual stuff is over here, money stuff's over here. <laughs> those, are, those are two separate things, man. Don't, don't try to mix the silos, right? The, the beautiful thing about Jesus, man, there are no silos. There are no sacred and spiritual. There's no you get this life over here and that life over there. That's called being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
He's talking about integrity, a unified, holistic vision of life. I want to take you through three applications that he brings to this crazy story. First of all, in verse 13, he says, man, you better choose the right master. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. First of all, which master are you really serving? Because you can't serve both. You cannot simultaneously be going to Charleston and San Diego. You can't do it. You can tell me you're going to San Diego, but if you're heading east, you're not going there, right? You can talk about the beauty of San Diego all you want, but if you're getting closer and closer and closer to Charleston, you're not going to San Diego, right? You, you can only have one goal. Or as Jesus puts it, you can only have one master. Because in the end, greed and grace are masters that demand devotion. We will pour ourselves out in service to either the kingdom of man in which we are building our own glory, establishing our own security, pursuing our own ends, trying to find our own pleasure, investing in our own significance, and doing it by getting and getting and getting, keeping what I have and getting more, or I will be pursuing the richness of the kingdom of God. experiencing a greater and greater degree of grace because I will serve one master or the other. They demand our allegiance. They are not neutral. Money is not neutral. It can be a tool that is used for holy ends, but it is a dangerous tool because it, man, nothing makes us feel like we can be God like money. Nothing makes me feel like I can actually be secure without having to be dependent on God like having enough money. Nothing makes me feel like I can finally have fun and and be at rest. I can go on a vacation. I can indulge my desires. Nothing makes me feel like I can find pleasure in life apart from depending on the God who created pleasure like money. Nothing makes me feel like I can be important and significant in this world apart from the glory of God establishing my own personal glory like money. Money is not a neutral tool. It is a master that demands service. And Jesus says, you can't serve two masters, man. You can't. You're either going to build your kingdom or want to experience more of his kingdom. You're either going to want to increase your glory or live in increasing experience of his glory. You're either going to want to establish your name, fight for your own pleasure, establish your own security, or you're going to want to learn to increasingly rest in his power, his protection, and his provision. Don't be deceived. Don't be a dupe. Check your integrity. Because you can only serve one master. Choose the right one, man. Choose the right one. Be honest with yourself. Be clear with yourself. Do not put layers and layers and layers of ironic self-deception in place to keep you from seeing your own motivations, man. Expose it so that you can be aligned You know why? Because true riches are at stake. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He's comparing two different things. He's ultimately saying not only are you going to serve two different masters, but ultimately you're going to try to do it with two different things. He who is faithful in little will be entrusted with much. You know what the little is here? It's money. He who is entrusted, who is, he who is, fa- is faithful, he says, with unrighteous wealth. Not that money itself is bad. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is just a tool, but it's a dangerous tool. He who is faithful with this dangerous tool, he who is faithful with little, will be entrusted with much. And as Americans, what we think is, okay, if I'm faithful with just a little bit of money, he'll give me a lot of money. If I'm faithful with my tithe, God will increase my wealth. If I'm faithful with with being generous, then He'll increase my ability to be, I'll just get more and more money. And that totally misses the point. Money is the little. He says, man, if you're faithful with the little, then you'll get the much. If you're faithful with unrighteous riches, then you'll get true riches. told this illustration before, but it was really striking. I was in Texas for a conference, and I got invited by a friend to go visit one of his friends, and so we left after the conference in the evening, and we pulled up to this, this mansion, and I'm not talking about a Mick mansion, you know what I'm saying, like, like the Nouveau Ritz. I'm talking like a mansion mansion. This thing's on this huge spread of land. It is monstrous. You walk in, Italian marble everywhere, statues, original art on the walls with all the special lighting, spiral staircases that lead up into the home, all kinds of mystery up there. And then, you know, lots of, man, it just smells of mahogany and leather-bound books. You just know this is a place of tremendous importance. And then we walk out back, and he's sitting on his deck, and he's got this zero-horizon pool looking out over this beautiful Texas landscape with a river. And there are two salmon-colored marble lions imported from Italy, no joke, sitting there. And he's sitting there drinking the good stuff. And he invites us over and says, would you like some of the good stuff? So we go sit with him, and we spend the evening with him. And it was fun. He was a good guy. It, it, was, it was entertaining. It was enjoyable and, and, and overwhelming, right? He leads us into the garage and shows us all his toys, right? All the toys. And I'm like, yeah, like those go fast. And, and you know, and we're going home. But here's what struck me. As I'm going home, I'm asking my friend about him. I'm like, man, that, tell me about this guy because he just seemed lonely. He's like, yeah, it breaks my heart. He, uh, he's been married a couple times. Um, he has fought so hard to climb the mountain. He sacrificed everything to get there. He's alienated from his kids. He can buy them everything, but, but they don't trust him. He's lonely. Here's a guy that is rich in little things and poor in big things. It broke my heart, his poverty. I get to go home to my 1,400-square-foot home to a wife who loves me and whom I love. And man, what mess of kids. But they're awesome. And I'm rich. Man, you could be rich eating Little Caesars pizza. Like Little Caesars. Like the cheap one, you know? Not even Domino's. 
You'll be rich because you got the real stuff. True riches. Y'all listen to me. You can have all the money in the world and be the poorest person on the face of the planet. Money promises everything. And it gives nothing. It only creates illusions. It creates the illusion of life. It creates the illusion of security. It creates the illusion of love. It creates the illusion of significance. It's all an illusion. And we know this. Like like nobody sitting here going, I've never thought that before. You know this. You just hate that I'm telling you. True wealth, man. True wealth is love. True wealth is knowing and being known, valued and being valued, being a significant part of a significant community, doing a significant thing. True wealth is having genuine purpose. True, true wealth is, is having the security of not just being able to take care of myself, but knowing I've got a group of people who love me. And I get to take care of them and they get to take care of me. True wealth. How foolish would we have to be to trade the greater things for the lesser things. The invitation in front of us is phenomenal. God has reopened the doors to the fullness and the flourishing of life, the very presence of the fullness of His shalom, the presence of His blessing, genuine love and fullness and security in the community of His saints. We're still pursuing the isolating path of Italian marble. Not that Italian marble's bad. Having things isn't bad. I know some guys who have a lot, and they're truly rich. You know why? Because they're stewards of what they have. What they have doesn't own them. Man, they give it away. They are generous because they recognize that true wealth doesn't come in having much. True wealth comes from experiencing the fullness of what God has given. And that equips me to be radically generous. Allows me to to lay down my self-protection, my self-promotion, my self-glory, and my self-gratification. And to pursue the the better true riches, right? Chase true riches, which allows you to invest in 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 a lasting legacy. Take a look at verses 8 through 10. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, because it will, money, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There's a way to use our temporary wealth to use these lesser riches to produce eternal rewards. There's a way to use unrighteous wealth to produce a rich harvest of righteous goodness. There's a way to use this dangerous tool to produce a lasting legacy. In the same way the shrewd uh, manager manipulated the system so that he could be welcomed into other people's homes after the system failed. Now, of course, his failure is still impending because <laughs> his dishonesty will ensnare him as well, right? Jesus isn't praising his dishonesty. He's praising his shrewdness. He's saying, are you just as shrewd in creating a lasting legacy of righteousness yourself? Do you actually think about 
life in terms not of just personal, temporary pleasure and security, but in terms of the resurrection of Christ? Do you recognize that this is the prelude to the true and greater story? That we follow Jesus of the resurrection and we also will be resurrected into a new age, a new kingdom, a new life. And that's the life that we genuinely long for. Every pleasure here is a foretaste of the fullness of pleasure there. Every experience of security here is just a flittering foretaste of the genuine security we will have there. Every, every, every sense of glory and importance here. It's just an appetizer for the genuine purpose that will drive us there. Are you just as shrewd in investing in in your perception of life as they are in their empty, selfish, self-serving? Do you have that kind of integrity? When we leverage what we have to increase blessing for others, We invest in a lasting legacy, a legacy that lives past this life. When we actually see our personal wealth, not as personal wealth, but as something that was given to us to steward by God, for God's glory, and for God's people's good, when we recognize that it is not mine to hold, to keep what I have and get more, It frees my hand, not just in generosity toward others, but in receiving grace from God. It is the clenched fist that closes our hearts to the grace of God. It is our need to keep and to hold that actually blocks the flow of the true riches of God's grace, keeps us from moving into genuine joy, genuine freedom, genuine transformation. I've known people who have deeply struggled with personal areas of, of struggle. And they're like, Pastor, how do I break through on this, man? How do I, how do I, and they're looking at it as a silo. Here's an area of personal difficulty and challenge, personal sin that I'm trying to overcome. And I'm, and I'm like, how are you serving others? What do you mean, how am I serving? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this. No, we're not. You want to silo your struggles as if somehow you can accomplish You're a web, dude. You're a holistic thing. There's got to be integrity to the whole story. You want to overcome this? Grow in this. I've seen people grow, like, like actually have monumental experiences of personal transformation by learning to step out and do the thing. They, they grew in the ways they wanted to grow by doing the things they didn't want to do, like actually stepping out and sharing their faith. <laughs> Some people, the most terrifying thing in the world. Actually speaking to somebody who doesn't believe the way you do and sharing with them the beauty of the grace of God. Not to browbeat them, not to condemn them, not to overcome them or somehow conquer them in some fictitious culture war, but to love them in the grace of God. And I've seen people move through stages of personal transformation by learning how to be genuinely generous by learning how to release their death grip of greed. Because in giving, in flowing into the movement of generosity, they opened their hearts to the moving, flowing grace of God. 
And as they pushed out into the discomfort of blessing others, it renewed their experience of the blessing of God. See, what we do with our money shows us our values. I can look at your checkbook with you, and we can, we can create a pretty good line item agenda of what you truly value. But here's, here's the secret, y'all. That just condemns us. Here's the beauty. See, what we do with our money doesn't just show us our hearts. It shapes our hearts. We can intentionally push into generosity knowing that as we push into generosity, it will renew our experience of grace. What we do with our money not only shows us our hearts, it shapes our hearts. Now you're starting to figure out maybe why the Pharisees were ridiculing Jesus. Why they're standing over here going, man, what an idiot. You don't get rich by giving stuff away. You don't, you know, you give to people who enrich you, right? You, that's why you don't have that many poor friends. That's why you live in rich neighborhoods. You separate yourself from poverty. Why? Because, because that, you have fewer people reaching out to you with their needs, and that allows you just to keep what you have and get more. That's why Jesus was always pushing out to the margins. He was always traveling to the poor neighborhoods. He was always finding the refugees. He was always looking for the ones that were suffering so that He could meet them in their suffering because it was in giving grace that He opened up the channels of grace. And that's why the followers of Christ are called to do the same. Look, y'all, we are either going to be building the kingdom of man or we're going to be living in the overflowing abundance of the kingdom of God. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot pursue two ends. You cannot live by two goals. Are we going to be shrewd in our use of our resources? Are we going to have an internal integrity between our goals and, and, and our behavior, between our motives and our values, between the root and the fruit? There's a lot at stake. And we're fools, man. We're fools if we don't choose the right way. So Jesus invites us to the comfort of grace, but he invites us with the conviction. <laughs> the way to resurrection is always through death. We've got to put our, death, our greed to death to grow in our experience of grace. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Give thanks to God for his overflowing abundant grace let's pray father we thank you that you love us in our mess because that's all we have even our perceived self-righteousness we've worked so hard to create this fake resume lord you see right through it and you love us in spite of our mess you love us in spite of our hypocrisy you love us in spite of our self-deception and you call us you continually call us to the sanity of love that we might have the courage to see ourselves truly and accurately and then the courage to follow you in faith, knowing, Lord, that you're the one who has the words of eternal life. You are the only one that can bring us into the fullness and the flourishing of life. Everything else is a deception. You're the one who paid the price. You're the one who invites us near. Spirit, will you make that invitation so ridiculously compelling today that we might with joy 
push into putting our greed to death. That we might with joy push in to the honor and the dignity of generosity. That we might with integrity follow our master to love and be loved and set free. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.